Well, people of God, let's turn to this high and wonderful passage, the first chapter of John's Gospel, and focus together this morning on the theological mystery of the Incarnation. This morning, I am reading from the authorized version, the King James, as I did in our wonderful Christmas Eve service last evening. All the readings were from the authorized last evening. You will have no problem following along in your ESV. Will you pray with me? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, what a privilege is ours this day. The Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, coming together to worship your name, but also Christmas Day, a day in which we give special attention to the birth of our Savior. And as all the month of December we have been dwelling upon the incarnation of our Lord, may this text be for us a true capstone to our understanding. And year by year, as our children grow and as we mature, give to us, we pray, a deeper understanding, appreciation for, and a sense of awe at the majesty that is revealed in this wondrous truth. And we pray that all might give their attention to the reading and exposition of the Word. It is a majestic text, a difficult text, a wonderful text, simple enough for a child to understand, deep enough that the most mature Christian can swim in it. And we ask that even our smallest children will give attention to the Word of God on this Christmas morning. May the Word of the Lord indwell us richly, and please receive our gratitude that you have not left us in our sins, but sent your own Son to be our Redeemer, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's Word and stand with me? I'd like to read the first 18 verses, even though our focus will be on verse 1 and 14 with a mention of verse 18. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, this is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, 
He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now notice again, verse 1 in particular. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Please be seated. We have before us this morning a wonderful Christmas package. It's all gold and wonderful from the start, and the more you dig into it, the better it gets. It's a great treasure box, the prologue to John's gospel, and I always feel that I'm attempting the impossible by expounding the first chapter, the first verses of John's gospel, but how I enjoy the attempt. And what I'm asking of you, people of God, is that you will join me in enjoying and attempting to plumb the depths of the incomparable and sublime text that is before us. And as we turn to this text, the first thing we see is that our Lord Jesus is the eternal word. We see that and we're only beginning to remove the ribbon from the package. What is to come is truly wonderful. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You hear there a reflection of Genesis 1, don't you? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what we are being told here is the Word was never created. He always was. He did not begin to exist. When creation began, He had always been. John 17, 5, He had glory with the Father before the world was. Colossians 1.17, he was before all things. And John's point, there was never a time when the word was not. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been from all eternity, and he is called the word. And the word, word, is truly inexhaustible. It means that he shares in God's own being, that he is the exact image of God, that he is the one who alone can express the love of the Father to us. Word is inexhaustible because it is the expression of God's own being. It is God's thought, God's own expression, God's own Son. In the beginning was the Word, meaning all of this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Word. Then moving along in this first verse, our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, even though the eternal Word is also distinct from His Father, yet one with His Father. The Father and the Word are two persons, for it says the Word was with God. And actually, the Greek text could be well translated, he was face to face with God. And so there is a distinction of persons between the Father and the Word, and as we know, also the Holy Spirit. Yet both persons are co-equal, all three persons are co-equal from eternity. One God in three persons. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. As I explained to the Jehovah's Witnesses at my door just a few weeks ago, the Trinity is what the Bible teaches about 
the being of God. There are not three gods, but there is one God in three persons. Now, this is truly an inexplicable mystery, but there is no Christianity without this truth. Christianity is all about the Trinity, the triune God. And therefore, though distinguishable from the Father, we see in this text, thirdly, that our Lord Jesus Christ is God. Look at verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have a plain, unmistakable, bold-faced statement that Jesus Christ is God, the eternal God. Absolute clarity that he is not a created being, that he is not inferior to the Father. Now, this point is so plain and obvious on the face of the text and of Scripture as a whole that it has been the calling of the church through the centuries to defend the full deity of Jesus Christ tooth and nail. Because if there is anything that the evil one hates, it is the church's proclamation that Jesus is God. He wants people to have low thoughts of him. Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries conducted a survey recently, and it was reported in a recent Christianity Today, and they found 12 areas where evangelicals today hold heresies that have long, long been dealt with in the history of the church. I must tell you, they are absolutely shocking to me, and I'm certainly not going to repeat all 12 to you, but let me give you a sample of what was there. For example, Evangelicals were asked, these are people claiming to be evangelicals and evangelical churches. People have ability to turn to God on their own initiative. And the answer to that, 82% of those answering said that was true. And of course it is not. Another one, most people are good by nature. 54% of evangelicals answered that that was correct And most of the rest said they didn't know. Most of the rest said they didn't know. Where's the Bible? Another one, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Now that's right out of the the Jehovah's Witness toolbox. And yet, 56% of evangelicals asked said that that was true. And most said they didn't know. Not to know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity? And this is the one that is most applicable to us this morning. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 71% of evangelicals asked said that that was true. And most said they didn't know. Now let me tell you. Some people in church, just aren't listening. But let me tell you too, some preachers just aren't preaching. They aren't teaching the truth. How in the world could 71% of evangelicals agree and most of the rest say they didn't know that Jesus Christ is not a created being, but he is God himself who assumed human nature. Christianity, you see, must be taught. It's not caught by osmosis. So Jesus is God in all of his perfections. In John 14, 
He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, that is to say, of the same being. Now, I hope that you're enjoying this, people of God. As we contemplate the riches of this text and the wonder of what it means that Jesus is God, our Savior, I hope that you are delighting in this truth. One of the old theologians said, it is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety to believe it. It is life eternal to know it. And we can never have a full comprehension of it till we come to enjoy it. And you come to enjoy it by knowing him and communing with him. Notice in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Again, one essence and yet distinct. As the Puritan Aerosmith put it, ask the sun if ever it were without its beams. Ask the fountain if it were without its streams. So God has never been without his son. And when you bow before Christ, you bow before God. And so the Nicene Creed that we confess this morning, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, could be taken right out of John, the first chapter. But then notice with me that as God, fourthly, our Lord Jesus Christ is the creator. And so we read in verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And since all created things are from him, he can be no creature. Jesus Christ created the worlds. Jesus Christ created the worlds. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. Hebrews 1.2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. John 5.19, whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus is our creator. But then fifthly, as we move along, we see that our Lord Jesus is the source of life and light. Verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And so he came into this world, the light shines in the darkness, most do not comprehend it. But if anyone has life, it is through Christ who is the light of men. He is the creator of all things. He is the source of the new creation. 1 John 5.11 tells us, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. No one knows or enjoys spiritual life but through Jesus Christ. When God spoke the creative world, word in Genesis, a world teeming with, with life and light came to be. And in John, new life comes through Jesus, the light of the world. In John, to be separated from Christ is to remain in darkness. It's a constant theme in John's gospel. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And so when we read verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Verse 9 means that Jesus alone can make plain to anyone the meaning and the purpose of life. The only way in which you can be regenerated and enlightened and understand who God is, who man is, and why you are here, and where you are going, and what your need of a Redeemer is, is through the light that shines in the person of Jesus Christ. And so someone here this morning is perhaps thinking, a Redeemer? I don't need a Redeemer. I'm not a sinner. 
Or maybe I'm a sinner, but not such a sinner that it requires that God would come in the flesh to save me. You say you're not a sinner? The only way you can say that is because you have not stood alongside Jesus Christ. Because you have never contrasted yourself with the holiness of Jesus Christ. Because you have never, you have never come into his light so that the darkness of your heart and your soul shines in the midst of it, brightly showing you your need of a Redeemer. Then we move in the text and we see, sixthly, that our Lord Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Now, children, I like to remind you the word incarnate means that he became flesh, that he became man. When your mother makes chili con carne, it's chili with meat. So what the Bible is saying here, and hear it clearly, when I was a child sitting in the pew and I heard the minister say this, I would scratch my head and say, he can't mean that. But he did, and the Bible teaches it, and your minister means exactly what he is about to say. God actually became a man. And that's what we are taught in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is the greatest of mysteries, children, but it's true. And that's how you were saved from your sin. He who suffered on the cross must be God manifest in the flesh. Why the incarnation? Why did God come into this world and assume human nature? Why did God become man? Arrowsmith, the Puritan, that which was not taken could not be healed. If Christ had not taken the whole man, he could not have saved the soul. B.F. Westcott said, nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. And that is why God took upon himself human nature, why he took up his residence with us. It's the answer to that old question of Anselm of old, Curdeus Homo, why God man, why did God become man? He became man because only man could die on the cross for your sins, and only God could sustain him, because he must be God and man to go to the cross for us. And when in the verse 14 we are, told, we are told, we beheld his glory, beheld his glory, what John is telling us is that I and the other apostles actually saw God in the flesh, that he is an historical person, that Christianity is not a philosophy, it's not an idea, it's based in historic fact. And the word behold there from the aomai is a word that is never used of of uh, a quick glance. It's always used of a fixed, lingering look. It's not used of a mental image, but always of a concrete image. And the point here is that John and others saw the incarnate Lord. They saw God in the flesh walk among men, showing compassion, demonstrating love, healing the sick, raising the dead, They saw his precious body lifted up on a cross and his blood shed to save us. They saw him in his resurrected body. They ate with him and touched him and fellowship with him. And they saw his body ascend 
into heaven. So do you see what a contrast is here between the word became and the word was? What a contrast. In the beginning was the word. And that word was God. And verse 14 tells us the one who always was eternally pre-existent became what he had not previously been. Again, one of the old theologians says to explain the exact significance of this word became in this sentence is beyond the power of any interpreter. I've told you I feel that I'm attempting the impossible. Who can adequately explain the eternal God becoming flesh? And so we're beginning to get right into the center of our package this morning. And what a beautiful present it is. For eighthly, I would point out to you, our Lord Jesus Christ is the revealer of the Father's heart. And so we are told in verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Declared him, the word from which we derive our term exegesis, to unpack a text, to explain a text. And here it really could almost be translated that way. He has come to exegete the Father. Would you know what God is like? Look to Jesus Christ. He is the revealer of the Father. Luther quotes Seneca, speech is the image of the heart. And so the word made flesh reveals God's heart. Only God can reveal God. And God wanted to know a people. And look at what lengths to which he has gone to commune with us. God came in Bethlehem long ago. God came with skin on. The author of eternal life, the one who created all things, this one became a part of creation. Has God come to save us? Let me say these things to us as we consider these momentous truths. Listen, if you will, to Article 2 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England, so precisely and beautifully written. It says, The Son, which is the Word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, the very eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the blessed virgin, of her substance, so that two whole perfect natures, that is to say the godhood and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile his Father to us, And to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but also for the actual sins of men. Had Jesus alone been God, he could not have been our representative and he could not have been our substitute on the cross. Had Jesus alone been man, he could not have sustained the load, the infinite load of our guilt and satisfied the infinite wrath of God that was against us. 
But since he is God and man, fully God and fully man in perfect union, he could storm the citadel of hell for us. And he did. And this blood that he shed on the cross, this blood is transcendently glorious. And on this Christmas morning, in view of these stupendous truths, I call upon us one and all to believe in him alone for salvation. As James Henley Thornwell put it, Christ crucified is still the magnet of souls, the hope of the earth, and the wonder of heaven. And may it be that no one here may look back on the day of judgment and say, I heard that minister on that Christmas morning. I heard him say that God became man and that his blood was sufficient for the vilest of sinners, for any sinner who believes in him. I heard that minister on that Christmas morning, but I did not trust in Christ. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Oh, may that not be. But the simplicity of faith, trust in Christ, and your sins are forgiven, and that forever. Now, people of God, I just can't say it better than this. I try, but you see, we come to the bottom of the package, and the problem is that the bottom of the package, there is no bottom. It goes on and on and on and on. And my goal every, every year is to help us by the grace of God, if the Holy Spirit is pleased to, to bless it, to help us in this season be filled with a sense of wonder and a sense of awe in the recognition. God became man. And I really fear that Americans, so blessed with so much, so filled with thoughts of entitlement that we can actually think, well, sure he did. Of course he did. Because we don't see our ill desert. We don't see that we deserve his infinite displeasure. You and I hardly begin even as true believers in Jesus Christ, if you are one. You and I hardly begin to understand what it means that the second person of the Trinity came infinitely down, 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 down and became a man that he might bear in his own body and soul the infinite weight of our sins on the cross. I didn't deserve that gift. You do not deserve that gift. And that's what Christmas is all about. It is sheer, free, sovereign grace. Sovereign, free, condescending mercy. To those of us who deserved the infinite punishment of hell forever. 
He bore my hell. Why did the son become Mary's little baby? Let me close with these lines of Gerhardus Voss. You've heard us quote Voss. All the pastors are influenced by the theologian Gerhardus Voss. You may not know, however, that this great old Princeton professor expressed his piety in beautiful poetry. And I give you these few lines. His smallness laden with our sin. Born that his birth cries might begin. Full 30 years of tragedy. Each step, a step toward Calvary. Merry Christmas, people of God. God has come to save you from your sins. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.